Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. You can go ahead and take your seats. And let me also invite you to get your Bibles out and you can start making your way to 2 Corinthians 13. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the final chapter uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. In fact, we're going to finish the book uh, today. And so if you want to bear with me here for just a moment, let me lay out uh, where we're going to be going here in the coming months and even years in terms of our preaching calendar, uh, given that we're at the end of 2 Corinthians. Uh, as we've already mentioned, next week is Christmas Eve. Uh, so uh, we're going to do the total typical tr- traditional uh, Christmas Eve text of Revelation 1 uh, next Sunday. Is that not normal and typical and traditional? I guess not. Okay. Uh, but that's where we're going to be next week. We'll do a standalone Uh, on the 31st out of the Psalms, Uh, and then beginning on January 7th, we are back into uh, the book of Genesis. And so if you've uh, been with us over the last couple of years, you know that we've done a couple sections of Genesis. We did 1 to 11 at the beginning of 22, uh, uh, chapters 12 to 25 at the beginning of this year, and then the beginning of 2024, we're going to finish the book. So we'll do chapters 25 through the end of Genesis, which is chapter 50. That should take us up to, uh, we're anticipating getting there by Memorial Day. Uh, And then we're going to immediately jump into the Gospel of Luke, which will take us well into 2025. Uh, And that's a long way out to talk about anything else that we might be doing uh, from a preaching perspective. So that's where we're going. Uh, But this morning, we are going to finish Uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to finish this letter. And the text that we come to, uh, this final chapter, uh, the the, the letter concludes with a final warning to the Corinthians that Paul one more time is going to appeal. One more time he's going to warn this church. In fact, what this text is going to reveal is this idea right here, that we are warned to examine our faith for the purpose of gospel living. That we're warned to examine our faith for the purpose of gospel living. Now, this is an argument that he's pushed throughout the entirety of the book. His desire is that the church would would, would be people that are living as if they're reconciled. That's why we titled the series Reconciled Living, uh, that they'd be reconciled both with God as well as with one another. Uh, And so really, this is just his last appeal to what he's been appealing to uh, throughout the entirety of the book. So with that, I'm going to read the passage I would encourage you to follow along, uh, loved ones. This is the word of the Lord. It says this. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration. 
comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all of time. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Won't you join me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word. Father, we're thankful for the ways that your word is going to do your work. Uh, God, we pray that your word would do its work within us right now. God, that you would give us uh, eyes that would see and ears that would hear and hearts that would know and understand the fullness uh, of your truth. God, that we would humble ourselves and submit ourselves to rightly hear from you. God, we ask that you would help us um, to, to do what the text is calling us to do. And that, God, that we would be helped and challenged and encouraged because of this. Father, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area this morning. God, praying for Hope Church and for Pastor Ben Friedman. God, we pray uh, for that body of believers that you'd be moving and working in them in the same way, God, that we desire that you'd be moving uh, and working in us. And so we submit ourselves to you now. God, we ask you to accomplish your good purposes for your glory. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, the title of the message this morning is a final warning, a final warning. And again, this idea that we're warned to examine our faith for the purpose of gospel living. Now, now, as we think about this passage, before we get into the text, I want just real quick, let me, let me frame it for us. Um, I want you quickly to think of a hammer and I want you to think of a hug. And you might be like, what in the world do, do a hammer and a hug have in common? Pretty much nothing. Okay, they have almost nothing in common, and yet depending on where you find yourself at this morning, uh, this text may feel to some of you like a hammer, uh, and to others of you it may feel like a hug. Uh, most likely it's going to feel like a little bit of both, and there's this polarizing element to what we're going to find here in the passage, uh, and yet we have to be cognizant of the fact that th there's a sobering reality to a final warning uh, and so we want to capture that. We, we want to be honest about that. And the reality is at times this is just going to feel like we're getting hammered and at other times like we're being hugged. So you've been warned uh, up front that's what's coming. Uh, so with that in mind, let's get into the passage. Let's begin with this idea right here uh, starting in verses 1 through 4. And the first thing we see is a final warning about sin. There's a final warning about sin. Now if you, if you think back to the end of chapter 12... Right? It's helpful for us to keep that in mind. Paul had talked about his fears and what he was going to find. He was not anticipating that he was going to come back to this flourishing, righteous community. In fact, look at what he says in 12 verse 20. He says, for I fear that when I come, I may find you not as I wish. And then later he's saying that he anticipates quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. In verse 21, he says, I fear that when I come, that you're not going to have repented of the impurity and the sexual morality and the sensuality that they had practiced, which helps us to make sense of everything that he's getting at here in verse 1, right? Because for 12 chapters, he's warned them about their sin. And so one final time, he's like, I'm going to warn you again about your sin. That's what he's doing here. And so as we look at this warning about sin, notice a few things. First of all, in verse 1, that we seek evidence of sin. That's a weird title. That's a weird saying. What are you getting at? Well, we'll get to it here in a moment. But we seek evidence of sin. Right? So he begins. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. He's reminding them, I'm coming back. And then he says something that feels totally out of place. 
Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Like, what? What's he talking about? What, what's he getting at? What, what does he mean in this? Well, that's a reference to Deuteronomy 19.15. And in the law, in that passage, it's stated that no one could be convicted of a crime without the corroborating evidence of at least two or three witnesses. That a single witness would not suffice to corroborate or, or convict an individual of a crime. And so Paul's saying, this is my third visit which in function, I think this is what Paul's saying here, serves as a third witness against you Corinthians. So I think what Paul is saying is, if I come back and this third visit bears out what I saw the first two times, and that there's ongoing sin, then it then functions as evidence to charge, right? Or to, uh, to, to confront you. And his goal is not necessarily, like, I want to catch you in the act and I want to stick it to you. Right? He loves them and he cares for them, but he's also not going to shy away from addressing sin, particularly sin that is evident. And so Paul's saying here in verse 1, he's like, I'm going to speak to what's evident. I'm going to speak to what's obvious. I'm going to speak to what is clear, which this is a good, good word for us as well, that you and I would speak to what is evident. And so, loved ones, where sin is evident, where it is obvious, where it is clear, you and I need to speak into it especially when it's ongoing, when it's continual, or it's perpetual. And yet the other side of this is equally helpful for us as well. That where sin is not evident, where it's speculative, or I'm having to conjecture, then we need to tread more carefully with respect to that. Right? We seek the evidence of sin. And so where sin is evident, what, what do we do? Well, look at what he does starting in verse 2. That we warn others of the consequence of sin. Look at what he says. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He's like, where sin is evident, we're going to warn them of the sin that is evident, and specifically, we're going to warn them of the consequences. And here, the consequences, you're not going to be spared, that you're going to be confronted, you're going to be rebuked, you're going to be disciplined for sin. Right, where sin is evident, a warning is required. Do you hear that, church? Where sin is evident, a warning is required. Now, God's Word does this often, does it not? Um, and yet, part of what God's Word is telling us is that God's people are also to do this. That this is not only for the Word of God, but this is also for you and I to do in the life of fellow brothers and sisters. Right? This is what the church does when it disciplines, when it corrects, when it exhorts. It's warning others of the consequences of sin. In fact, we see this in a few ways. Right? When someone is warned of sin, first of all, it's a warning to the offender. Right? The, the, the warning to the offender is, you're in error. You're in danger. Right? And you, you might say, okay, what's the danger? Well, well, the danger is this, that in persistent unrepentant sin. It reveals at a minimum a massive problem, if not the reality that that individual is not in fact regenerate. They're not a believer. And if you're like, that seems harsh, we only have to look back to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians to see this in 1 Corinthians 5, when the man who was caught in sin, Paul says this about him, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Right? Like, I mean, he, he's, he, this is a warning of the danger and the consequence of sin. But it's not only a warning for the offender, it's actually a warning for the entirety of the faith community. It's a warning for others. 
that we're all reminded that sin is serious. See, because when you see sin being addressed, right, when you see it rebuked, when you see it confronted, we're reminded of the severity and the consequences of sin. Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 when he says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. Actually a corrective for all of us. And so, so this warning of the consequence of sin, it's, it's actually helpful for us. And, and loved ones, we, we need to see this for what it is. We need to see this for what it is. Because this, while it is difficult, it's actually a gracious and loving gesture to warn others of their sin. Now, it might feel harsh, it might feel severe, but the grace is warning them of their dangers that they're in. And, and if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my mind around this idea that, that it's gracious to be warning people in this way. Okay, well, here, I want you to imagine another scenario. You tell me if it's hard under these conditions. I want you to imagine you're at the Grand Canyon, and you're standing at the rim, and you're looking out, surveying that incredible beauty, and you look over to your left or to your right or whatever this side is for you. I'm confused. Okay, but you look over here, right, and you see a group of kids playing tag. What do you do? You're probably going to warn them, Right? Right now, and, and if you were to say, well, you know, they, you know, they were having a lot of fun, and I didn't want to ruin the game, and, and I really just wanted to make sure that they had a great time. If you were to tell that to someone else, no one's going to go, that's so incredibly thoughtful of you. They're going to go, what's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you tell them of the inherent dangers? See, it's gracious. It's not hard to see the grace in that warning. And the stakes are equally high, if not higher, when it comes to to sin. It's a, it's a profound grace that we warn others of sin. Uh, one of the early church fathers, Augustine, he said it this way. He says, better to love with severity than to mislead by the excess of lenience. And as you think about this, isn't a warning of sin inherent in the gospel? None of you, none of you came to saving faith without a warning of your sin. And no one will ever come to saving faith without a warning of their sin, right? It's in knowing of our sin and being warned of what our sin warrants, right? That's what leads us to putting our faith and our trust in Christ. And you're like, well, wh where do we see that warning? I'd start with the first three chapters of Romans as a starting place, right? But you can go all over the Bible to see this. But not only is it inherent in the gospel, it's, it's actually inherent in the community of faith. Consider Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, where it says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Now listen to what he says next. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. See, it's your friend that'll warn you, your friend that'll say the hard word, the friend that'll point out sin in your life. And so here's what all of us have to ask ourselves. Will I warn my fellow brother or sister if they're in sin? Am I doing that? Do I need to do that? Am I willing to say the hard word? In fact, some of you right now, maybe you're thinking of a specific situation where, where maybe in this moment God's compelling you, no, I, I need to say something about this very thing, right? Let God's word prompt your response. We warn others of the consequence of sin. But, but, but it's not solely up to us, right? It's not just our power doing this. Look at what we see in verse three and four, that we trust the power of God at work in us. And so here, Paul again returns to this weakness power motif that we've seen over the last couple of chapters. Look at what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, he, Jesus, is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. 
For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And so again, we, we, it's hard to not think back to chapter 12, right? That God's power is made perfect in our weakness. It's that same motif that's, that's showing up, and Paul returns to that here as well. And here's really his flow of thought. Here's what he's getting at. He's saying Jesus was crucified in weakness, that he embraced our weakness and went to the cross on our behalf. But he now lives in the power of God. Right? The power of Christ is manifested in the fact that he conquered death and that he's resurrected and currently living. We presently are still weak, but we're in Jesus, which means we live with him, and he and his word is powerful among us. That, that, that's what Paul's getting at there. And I think part of what he's trying to say to the Corinthian church is like, don't confuse my personal weakness as a reflection upon the power of God. My weakness is not reflective of God somehow being weak. It's just my weakness. God himself is powerful in accomplishing his purposes, even in the midst of and maybe most profoundly in our weaknesses. He's saying God's dealt with your sin, and so we live in his power. God's the one who changes. God's the one who conforms. God's the one who sanctifies his people. And so we're trusting his power at work in us, not trying to do it in and of ourselves. You ever... You ever got to watch someone come to saving faith and then watch the sanctification in their life? Like, where you get to see it up close, whether it's a family member, maybe it's a child, a close friend, right? And when you watch that and you witness that, yes, we're, we're participating with the Lord in that process, but there's no mistake that God's the one who's driving that, right? It's, it's obvious and it's effectual. That's what Paul's getting at here. Right? We're trusting the power of God at work within us. And so, loved one, just ask yourself, am I going to trust the power of God to work in my life? Am I going to trust the power of God to work in my life even, even in my weaknesses? Or are there areas where I'm trying to do life independent of the power of God and what he intends for me? Paul issues this final warning of sin, which naturally leads then to a word of salvation, which he gets at in verses 5 and 6. And so here we see in verse 5 and 6 a final challenge about salvation. Look at what he says, uh, and it's kind of a little shocking, so let's just read it. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and you're like, uh, is he saying what I think he's saying? And the short answer is yes. He's insinuating and suggesting and saying all the things like, is he really saying that? And if you think about it, it fits contextually, right? Again, at the end of chapter 12, he was worried about what he was going to find, right? And so he's challenging them to examine themselves. And why is he doing this? Here's the purpose of this challenge. This challenge is to both clarify and to encourage. It clarifies where the individual is at spiritually in their life, and then it encourages a particular response from believer and non-believer alike. 
So, so this challenge, it intends to both be diagnostic as well as prescriptive. It diagnoses where the particular individual is at spiritually, and then it prescribes the appropriate response. So here, let's just look at both sides of this. Here's the first. It's the hope of Christ in you. Right? Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Right? He's like, for some of you, as you test, as you examine, as you evaluate, what you're going to find is you actually have Jesus in you, which should produce profound joy and confidence and hope. You're like, man, I have Christ in me. Okay, so how do I respond? Well, I, I, I align my life to the truth of God's word. And I'm happy to do so because I'm sealed by him. I'm held by him, right? And there's joy and security in all of this. And here's what you can't forget. All right, don't forget that what's going on in Corinth with all the false teachers is Paul is speaking into a very confusing situation. Because the false teachers have created all kinds of uncertainty, all kinds of confusion, because they put emphasis where the gospel does it. They're minimizing what the gospel holds high. So it's confusing and it's disorienting. And if you've ever found yourself in any capacity of life where there's confusion or disorientation, right, you, you get a little more apprehensive. There's just um, a little more uncertainty, maybe a little bit more instability. And that's not what the gospel does. Right? The gospel creates surety, and it creates certainty. And so Paul here, right, for believers, he wants to bring this clarity. He's like, you're in Jesus. Have the hope and the confidence of the reality that you're in Christ, and live like it. Right? It diagnoses, you belong to him. It prescribes, here's how you live. But he intends to produce an equal level of clarity on the other side of the equation. Because what we have to wrestle with here in verse 5 and 6 is the other side of the coin, so to speak, and it's the help of identifying unbelief. See, Paul didn't assume that everyone in the church was a believer, and we don't want to make that same mistake. In fact, we, we never assume that everyone sitting in the room is, in fact, a believer. And so here he issues this help of identifying unbelief. In fact, for some of you, if you're taking this passage seriously, as you examine yourself, as you test yourself, it may serve to reveal that you've never actually yielded and surrendered your lives to Jesus, that you've trusted in yourself, you've trusted in your works, but you have not trusted in Christ. And if that is the case, then God's word in this moment is a helpful and profound grace to you because it is clarifying that what you need is Christ. It has diagnosed your dilemma, which is your lack of faith in Jesus, and it is helping you, pointing you with clarity to the proper response, which is that you repent of your sin and that you trust in him, right? It's helping you to know that what you need is Christ. Think of it this way. Question. When do you want people to realize, when do you want them to come to the understanding that they have not, in fact, believed? Like, do you want that to happen now? Or you're like, no, let's just wait till later. Let's wait till the end. No, you want that to happen right now, right? You want that right now. And so where, whether someone's been confused, whether they've been deceived, whether they've been misled, you want them to figure that out immediately. And so this isn't just a word to the Corinthian church. Unfortunately, this is a word we have to consider 
as well. This is a fitting day because we too live in a, in a day of all kinds of spiritual confusion and distortion. Right? The gospel gets um, manipulated and distorted in all kinds of ways. And so when you consider the religious landscape that you and I live in, we need this same word. Right? When you just survey what's going on religiously and you have the moral failings of so many religious leaders, you have the deconversion, deconstruction trend that is pervasive in, in the spiritual realms. And then you've got no shortage of false teaching. Right? People who will show up on a Sunday morning in a building that people call a church, but that is not a church that is gathered. Because they don't open the Bible, and they just talk about other things. Right? You want to talk about false teaching? Here's what's at the root of false teaching. Do I want to hear a word from God, or do I want to hear a word that tickles my ears? Right? There's this false teaching. Am I going to believe some of the word or all of it? Am I going to follow all of what God says or just the parts that I like? But it's not limited to that. Right? There's false teaching around the, the means and the ways of salvation. Right? We live in a society that's universalist. Right? There's pluralist mentality and this universalist mentality of, of love wins. So you know, in the end, Jesus is going to save everybody. No, he's not. And you clearly have not read the New Testament with any level of comprehension. Because over and over and over again, it tells us just the opposite. There's no shortage of examples in the Gospels of people that walked away from Jesus because of his exclusive claims. You think about false teaching around our living, about how you and I live, it doesn't matter, right? Our conduct is inconsequential. Hey, you do you, you be your true self. Right? Like just, it doesn't matter. Yes, it does. See, because what it reveals, it reveals whether or not you want to exploit Jesus or you're actually surrendered to him. See, so if you don't know Jesus, if you're not right with Jesus, you need to know that right now. Like not a second should go by without you knowing that. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's like, hey, examine yourself. Test yourself. Now, here's the question all of us want answered. What's the test? Right? Like, like, how do I know if I passed? All you type A's, you're worried about getting a B on this test. It's pass-fail, all right? It's pass-fail. So how do I know? Okay, here it is. Is Christ in you? Okay, okay, that's helpful. But, but how do I know? No, no, is Christ in you? That's it. Okay, well, how do I know that Christ is in me? Well, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? How would I know that I've surrendered my life to Jesus? Well, is your life marked by the evidence that you've surrendered your life to Jesus? Does Jesus rule your life and not yourself? Or are your living and your thinking being conformed and sanctified into his image? Are your desires growing for the things of the Lord? But is Christ in you? And as I say this, let me just, a word of caution here. Don't conflate the signs. Don't conflate the markers with the means. See, the, the, the evidence of salvation is not the means of salvation. So the signs or the works or the evidence or uh, uh, this demonstration that Jesus is in me, that's not what saves us. You and I are saved by faith alone, through grace alone. That's it. It's the only way anyone's saved. But part of what Paul's saying is that, you know, that there, there is an evidence. So, so think of it like this. Um, think of a road sign. So you get on an interstate, let's, let's go to Denver, right? You get on an interstate, you're heading to Denver, and it says, Denver 300. That sign is not Denver, 
right? When it says Denver to 300, you're not like, I'm here. No, that sign uh, is an indicator of where you're at in reference to Denver, right? In the same way that signs or marks or evidence in our lives are not salvation, but they are indicators of where we're at in reference to salvation. And so Paul's whole challenge, right, his whole challenge here intends uh, to, to bring about clarity. It intends to give confidence and hope for believers, and it's revealing for non-believers that your greatest need is that you're not right with Christ. It's diagnostic, and it's prescriptive. Is Christ in you? And if so, loved one, you praise God for his infinite grace. You praise God for his infinite grace. And if not, then you have been graciously notified of the peril and the danger that you are at spiritually in this moment. And what you need is to put your faith in Jesus, to confess your sins, to cling to Christ as he has reconciled you to the Father. It's a final challenge about salvation, which leads here to this third item, and it's a final prayer restoration. A final prayer for restoration. Now, let me, let me just highlight two things here in verses 7 through 10. We could do more, but just two things I want us to see. Here's the first, look at verse 7 and 8, that we pray for righteous living. That we pray for righteous living. And so what's, what's gripping about what Paul prays is that his focus actually has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with the Corinthians' spiritual well-being. Look at what he says, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test. He's like, I don't really care what you think about us, but that you may do what is right. That's all we care about. We're praying that you'd not do wrong, that you would do right, though we may have seemed to have failed. Right? His focus is on their well-being. And don't miss this. He's praying for the very people who have mistreated him, and what he's praying for is for their well-being and their good. Right? It's not vindictive. He doesn't care about how he comes across doesn't care about how he's going to be viewed. He's just caring about their spiritual well-being. And then you get to verse 8, and he says this, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And he's like, my role as an apostle is not to make myself look good. It's to point you to the truth. He's like, it, it's a stewardship, right? Like, my role as an apostle is to steward the truth to you, which is a helpful word for us, is it not? Loved ones, this is how all of us should feel about the gifts and the resources and the talents and the platforms that, that God gives to us. That, that it's not about making ourselves look good, but the things that God entrusts to us, that we are stewards of those things to point people to the truth of Christ. And in fact, this actually plays out in a number of really practical, pragmatic ways. Let me give you one example. So, so our next door neighbors moved in sometime this summer. Um, so my wife has this incredible gift of baking, uh, and I am convinced that she is endeavoring to bake our neighbors into the kingdom, right? Like, I think that is what is unfolding on our street. Uh, and so she's, right, she's taking a gift and stewarding it with the purpose of pointing them to the truth, right? So there's no shortage of ways in which you and I do this. But that's all Paul's saying there in verse 8. He's like, man, I'm just using what God put into me. I'm trying to point you back to the truth, but all of it under this idea of praying for righteous living. Now again, let me have you consider here, Paul's praying for the very people that slandered, that maligned, and mistreated him. That sound like anybody else? Anyone else done that before? 
Sounds like Jesus, right? On the cross, Father, forgive them. He's praying for the very people that are responsible for his death. And so what Paul's doing here, first of all, it's clearly biblical, but I'd also argue that it's massively practical as well. In fact, I I think for, for far too many of us, too often, we actually miss opportunities by not praying for those people who are difficult in our lives. And I don't mean some generic prayer of make them stop being a jerk. I'm talking about praying for their spiritual well-being. And I think one of the opportunities that is, that is missed in that is the ways that it softens you and I toward them. So here, here's the question. Does forgiveness feed our prayer or does prayer feed our forgiveness? And I think the answer to that is yes. Right, that, that, that they, they mutually work together. Paul has no resentment towards this group of people that have just been awful to him because he's praying for them. Do I pray? Do do I pray for other people that they would live righteously? Do I pray for difficult people that they would live righteously? Are my prayers, are they even for others? Is it still focused on myself or am I primarily concerned with their spiritual well-being? Don't cheat yourself out of the opportunity to pray for those who mistreat you. We pray for righteous living. And then notice secondly in verse 9 that we pray for restoration. This is an incredible verse here. Look at what he says. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. All right, so let's just walk through this phrase by phrase here for just a moment. First of all, we're glad when we're weak. I don't know a lot of people that say that. I'm glad when I'm weak. Well, of course, we know why Paul's saying that. Right? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Right? So again, this idea, I, I can be glad when I'm weak because God's power is now on display. But then look at where he goes right after that. Not only is he glad when, we're, when, when he's weak, he's also glad when they're strong. Right? I'm glad when you're strong. And so there's this profound joy for us when we will delight, when we will appreciate, and we'll be thankful for God's work in other people. Right, Paul's, Paul's excited for their strength, even though things in their life may, maybe isn't going as well as he would hope. So, so let, me, let me try to illustrate this in, in, in a setting you and I would understand. So, so this summer, leading up to this summer, and even coming out of this summer when I was on sabbatical, um, I, I found it fascinating how so, I, I felt like some of you were more excited for my sabbatical than I was. And, and I'm going to intend, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to assign motive that you just weren't excited that I was just going to disappear for a little while, right? That you legitimately were excited for the rest and rejuvenation that, that was going to come our way. And, and it's that same concept, right? That there wasn't benefit for you. And yet some of you found this incredible joy because we got to enjoy uh, some, some other blessings. That's exactly what Paul's getting at. And so he says, I'm glad when when you're strong. And then he says, your restoration is what we pray for. See, the goal is restoration. The goal is this reconciled living. And yet don't, don't miss the connection here. That as Paul is praying for others' restoration, he's doing it in a season of personal weakness for himself. And yet in that season of personal weakness that he's helped and encouraged as he prays for them. Loved ones, might there be a word for you and I in the midst of this as well? That praying for others' restoration in our weakness actually serves and strengthens us as well. 
In fact, I think some of the most incredible moments in my life and, and some of the most incredible things that I've witnessed in ministry are tied to these very things. Where you watch and you witness people in times and seasons of weakness, of difficulty and hardship, and they, they want to pray for other people. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly powerful. When you find yourself in that situation, you go to a hospital, right? You go to a bedside and someone is sick or dying and they want to pray for others in spite of their own affliction. You sit with people in a season of loss and they want to pray for others in spite of their mourning and their grief. It's incredible. And yet I think it's also a balm for us. See, one of the greatest antidotes to suffering, to hardship, to discouragement and disappointment is to serve others. And one of the ways we do that is we pray for others' restoration, even in our weakness. Right? Let it be true of us. You get to verse 10. Just a quick note on it. He says, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you. Essentially, Paul's saying, guys, I'm just trying to warn you, and I want you to button this up before I get there. So that when I get there, we're not having to deal with these hardships, but we can just enjoy being with one another. Which then leads into his closing benediction here in verses 11 to 14. Here's our final idea for the morning. It's a final hope for gospel living. A final hope for gospel living. Here's what he says. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Three things, three things I want you to note here uh, in these closing verses, and we're done. Here's the first, that when it comes to gospel living, we live as family, that we live as family. So he says, finally, brothers, uh, and that brothers there means brothers and sisters, right? It's a familial term. Here's what's really interesting, and you should probably know about this. Second Corinthians is divided into three major sections, chapters 1 through 7, chapters 8 and 9, chapters 10 through 13. At the beginning of chapter 1 and 1-8, Paul uses the term brothers to speak to the Corinthian church. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 8 and 8-1, he uses that term brothers. But at the beginning of chapter 10 and, and following, he doesn't use that term brothers until now. It's not till the end that he gets uh, to this uh, term, uh, this usage of the term brothers. But he's reminding them, in spite of all the rebukes, in spite of all the challenges, in spite of all the things that he dealt with in chapters 10 through 13, he's saying, hey, we're family. We're made family in Jesus. That when God saves us, we're adopted into the family of God. That gospel living demands that we live as gospel family because this is who God makes us, right? He makes us brothers and sisters of one another. And so I, I don't know if, if you have siblings. I have three siblings. I always think that's a helpful way to look at this. Of course, you know, there's, there's like a positive and a negative. I mean, I think of my siblings, and I can think of all kinds of negative ways that would not reflect uh, how we live as a family, some of the snark and sarcasm um, and the biting remarks and uh, things of that. I'm just waiting for my siblings to be sanctified and matured, and then we can all get along, right? <laughs> yeah, right, I'm typically initiating a lot of that. Let's just own that. But here's the other side. Here's the other side of that. When I think of my siblings, uh, I, I think of two brothers and a sister that are committed to one another. Uh, that we love and are loved by one another, that we know and are known by one another, that we're for one another. No one celebrates uh, successes like my siblings do. No one mourns defeats uh, like my siblings do. And, and I think that's Paul's point, right? That this is what should characterize gospel family, that this should be true of us, loved ones, that we live as family. 
Right, so look around. I, I know y'all are going to spend time with biological family uh, in the coming days and weeks. This is your spiritual family, right? And we need to live as family. Secondly, when we look at verse 11, this, this series of imperatives, uh, we see this, that we live as reconciled believers, right? That this here, this series of imperatives that Paul gives, this really captures the heart of what he's been driving at throughout the entirety of this letter. Like there's five of them. Let's just talk about each of them real quick. First of all, he says to rejoice at the joy of knowing and walking with Jesus, the joy of repentance, the joy of surrender, the joy of obedience. Now, what the, the lie of the enemy would be that, that obedience and surrender to Jesus is boring and that there's fun in, in doing your own thing. No, no, there's no greater joy than to walk in Christ and to, with, with Christ, right? So we rejoice because we get to walk with Jesus. Secondly, we aim for restoration. It's this idea to put back in place. It's to mend something. Okay, now listen. This begins with you and I. It begins with you and I. Here's what you have to, you can't miss this, that the initiative is assigned to each of us. It's not passive in saying, wait for others to come be restored. It's proactive. You go aim to be restored, which is consistent with what Jesus said back in Matthew 5, right? If you're at the altar offering your gift and you remember that your brother has something with you, what are you supposed to do? You stop, you go back, you get right, and then Go and finish your offering. We aim for restoration, right? We're the ones proactive in this. Thirdly, we comfort one another. There have been no shortage of wrongs and hurts that have been committed by the Corinthians to one and another. Plenty of fractures and factions. And yet here the command is to comfort. Kent Hughes in his commentary had this great line around comfort. He said this, comfort is the currency of unity. It's the currency of unity. Let us be people who endeavor to comfort one another. Fourthly, we agree with one another. Now, now agreement here is not that we're uniform. It's that we're unified. Did you hear that? Massive distinction. It's not uniform. It's unified. Because inherent in the church, there is a diversity of, of um, giftedness and personality and people and ages and stages of life. So it's not this singular uniform mold, it's that all of us in our distinctiveness are unified around the gospel. That's where our agreement is. It's in the person and work of Jesus, which leads to the final one. And I really think is actually the aggregate of all these characteristics. It's that we live in peace. That when we live as a family, right, we live as reconciled believers who are rejoicing and aiming for restoration and comforting and agreeing that we're going to live in peace. I mean, don't you want that? Doesn't living in peace sound incredible right now? That's what gospel living intends to drive us toward. So just ask yourself, am I endeavoring to pursue these exhortations? Right? Am I being proactive around rejoicing and restoring and comforting and agreeing with one another? Let's be people who are proactive in this. Which leads then here to this final item. Jump down to verse 14 real quick. That we live in the power of the Trinity that we live in the power of the Trinity. Maybe you caught this when we read this, but notice that all three members of the Trinity uh, are referenced here. Um, and notice how each member of the Trinity influences how we live. Right? So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we live in the grace of Jesus. 
right? The saving, atoning grace of Jesus that reminds us of our standing, that I am redeemed, uh, as well as our identity that is rooted and fixed in Him. Secondly, that we live in the love of God, right? God the Father, that God's love proactively works to save and to sustain and to uphold us in all things. God's love is what keeps us in Him. And then thirdly, that we live in the fellowship of the Spirit, right? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the ongoing relationship of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God is actively fellowshipping. Isn't that an incredible word? That the Spirit of God is actively fellowshipping with you and I right now, loved ones. Praise God for that. That's incredible. And so when you put this together, you have this powerful statement of living life in the power of the Trinity. And so we're warned we're warned to examine our faith for the purpose of gospel living. So let us examine, let us respond, and let us live as reconciled believers. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word to us. Father, for this book, which so powerfully uh, has spoken, addressed, challenged, confronted, uh, pushed, pressed in so many ways. God, this final warning, once again, this final warning, once again, calling us to you, to your saving work, to your redemptive work, to being honest about our sin, to being honest about our inadequacies and shortcomings, and to be equally honest about the power and the work of Christ in our lives. Father, we pray that we would heed this warning. Father, we pray that we would respond accordingly. God, I pray for those who are believers that we would just live marveling and awing in awe of your infinite grace. And God, if any are here that do not know you, God, that the warning today would bring clarity and it would encourage that response of surrendering and submitting their lives to you. God, if that's true of anyone in here today, God, we ask that they would not leave without being reconciled to you. Father, would you do that for their good? We pray this in your name. Amen.